Hello and welcome back after a fairly long hiatus to Straight From The Hot Tap. Due to work and family commitments we've been unable to record much content recently, but recent events in the Ukraine prompted us to reach out to Paul Biddle. Followers of the show will remember Paul for his powerful account of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and also the story of his extraordinary life during which he recounted parts of his time in Ukraine. We recorded this episode as events were escalating. The purpose really was to explore the reasons why Russia was flexing her muscles and why President Putin considered the neighbouring Ukraine as a legitimate target. You'll hear how, despite the continual threats and posturing, we really didn't think that an invasion would actually happen. It certainly felt that the muscle flexing and rhetoric were effectively testing the West's resolve and that was likely part of a wider strategy. Well, we were all wrong. And as Europe heads perilously close to a major conflict, Ukraine is embroiled in a military invasion that is already showing signs of being everything experts and the general public feared the most. Violent, bloody and tragic on an unimaginable scale. This is part one. Consider it the backstory. Part two will look at what's happened now and what this already means for peace in Europe and how the future can play out due to Putin's imperialist ambition. I'm Matt. I'm John. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is straight, straight from the hot set. I guess I'm of the view that why can't we all just get on? Let's just get around, have a couple of vodkas, chill the fuck out, basically. Can someone and other countries don't see it that way. Right, exactly. Yeah. If you look at it from our perspective, we've lived through the Gulf War, the Balkan conflicts, the Second Gulf War, and so on. We're students of history. So for the millennials that have seen nothing but peacetime in love and harmony, the concept that there's a, a country out there that maybe doesn't see the world their way is a shocking thing. It's a very shocking thing. They still celebrate their empire, whereas we are embarrassed by our empire. I would say there's a really interesting character called George Kennan. So he did this thing where basically at the beginning of the Cold War, the US ambassador to Germany, divided Germany, exclaimed in a moment of frustration dealing with the Soviet representatives on the Allied Control Council. He, he said, like, who are these frigging Russians? Like, why do they do stuff? I don't know anything about them. And what happened was this clerk overheard the comment working in the US embassy. And he was a Russia specialist because he was a, a very difficult personality. He'd been basically exiled to the broom cupboard. He wrote a telegram to this diplomat. It's called the Long Telegram. And it's where he, he compares Russia to a patient in a therapist's office. And he explains that Russia is driven by a sense of hysteria based on the fact that it's a country surrounded by endless open spaces. So that the people in the country are constantly imagining someone's coming, we just can't see them. The other thing with Russia is often been fearful of the enemy from within. If you look at the Chechnya conflict, if you look at the revolution and the different political functions that were fighting within that, the, the era of the purges and so on, the enemy was often inside the state structure as well as within the borders of the country. So that creates an element of paranoia, doesn't it? Yeah, Russia actually, it's a very multinational place, which is often overlooked completely. And... Even without the Soviet empire, it's a place of a lot of different nationalities. 
all who are lumped together in our mind as Russians. A lot of them don't want to be part of Russia. You know? So it's impossible not to watch the news at the moment and hear talk of the Ukraine. The Ukraine is a long way away from most of the people that are listening to this podcast. And it also represents one of those places that you hear a lot about hear about events that happen in Ukraine, you tend to know what the capital city's called because you learned it in geography at school. But you don't know a fat lot beyond that. And if you look at the news at the moment, the Ukraine is representing one of the biggest threats to peace that we've had for many generations. It's a bit embarrassing to say that you don't know much about a particular place, but that's why we invited Paul back onto the podcast to talk about it a little bit. Now, my personal interest in history started at school. And Matt, I know you share a similar viewpoint with that you know back yeah. in 1995 whenever it was listening to mrs Lisk, mrs. Lisk talking about class. the bolsheviks and mr sutton telling us about the the russian revolution and so on it very much lit a fire under you didn't it for your interest in, in all things russian I, i'd almost say matt that actually it lit a fire under me in terms of my interest in all things that are exciting because prior to those history classes i thought of history as an incredibly dull experience learning about the causes of the English Civil War, but never actually getting to the action, because we always stopped before the Civil War began. So I found history a kind of frustrating and extremely dull series of dates. When you were talking about the Ukraine just then, because I'm reminded of Neville Chamberlain's own comment about the Czechs in 1938 of faraway people about whom we know nothing. I think there's a lot of parallels between that and what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Russia is a really misunderstood and unknown place to people in the West. It's something that we see consistently on the TV screen as a kind of place of threatening, brooding ominousness, which we don't really understand and which it's easy for us to kind of conflate with being the bad guys. But I think that the reason why someone like Paul is so great to talk to is that he actually has a kind of insider perspective of it. It's funny because one of my best friends is Russian. It's through knowing her that I've, I've realized that our perceptions about Russia are actually, almost all of them, extremely superficial. Like you, Matt, I always loved history, but I found it hard to relate to history. I found it an academic exercise in learning dates and learning about the order that kings came in and trying to remember page number for the quotes that I was using. There's two anecdotes really that made my interest in Russia more real. Fortunately, I was in Russia at the time. Firstly, it was when we were on a tour of St. Petersburg, typical tourist thing on a cruise going into Russia to try and look at all the pretty things. I remember standing in a queue outside the Winter Palace, which is now the Hermitage, which is uh, one of the biggest museums in the world. I remember looking over the River Neva, and moored, still in eyeline, was the Aurora battleship, which of course was used to signal the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. And that made it all very real on two levels. One, that they've preserved that, and it's there as a monument to a period of Russian history. And secondly, that to understand Russia, you have to understand it in a militaristic context. The second anecdote I've got is going to the Church of Spilt Blood, which is a very famous monument with big onion domes and the crazy architecture in St. Petersburg. And that was all very interesting and beautiful. But the thing that I found most interesting of all was that they've retained and preserved some of the shell holes and bullet holes from the German invasion in the Second World War. That's fascinating. But rather than clean them up and polish it out, pretend it didn't happen, they've kept them. 
And when you see one, you start to see them all over the place. You start to see the remnants and the reminders of a time where Russia was under attack. And then you start to see the soldiers on the streets and you start to hear the planes overhead doing exercises and you see the submarines moored in the Neva River. And you realise that Russia is and has been battle-ready pretty much in its entire existence. So when you hear about Putin flexing his muscles, for them it's not a political stunt, it's a real thing. It's a really interesting perspective, Matt. If there's a moment that, other than Mrs. Lisk's history class, which really actually got me interested in action movies per se, because to me, history was always an action movie that just never finishes. If there was one moment where Russia came alive to me, it's when I was in Russia with a former Taunton school pupil who will doubtlessly remain nameless on this podcast because I'm not going to name him. And we were having a drink in a bar off of Nevsky Prospect, which at that time, right after communism, had very few shops and this was the only bar that we could find. And we were having a drink with these two English drug dealers from Essex that we ran into. <laughs> As you do. And who told us they'd come to Russia to sell ecstasy. We started chatting with them. We were the only people in the bar because I, I guess at that time no one could afford to have a drink. For whatever reason, me and my friend decided to go off to this other place. I think we were going to have dinner or something. A dinner of vodka with no food. But, and we told these two guys that they said they were staying here all night because they had some customers coming. They were a good laugh. So we said, um, we'll be back in a, in a couple of hours. But anyway, we came back in a few hours and they weren't there anymore. So we were like, okay, whatever. A few days later, we ran into them again, only they didn't look so happy and they were on their way to the airport. Ever since they'd seen us, 10 minutes after we left, the police came in, arrested them, and they spent the next five days in a Russian police cell being beaten up and tortured. So I thought, I nearly had, had had that experience. We missed the militia by 10 minutes. What you're hearing in this interview as well is the, the other side of Russia that people don't talk about is the meeting of the very old and the very new. And again, something that, that really resonated with me in, in a cathedral in Petersburg, which is an absolutely fabulous building, grand in scale, very different to what you'll find in the Western world. In the church, there were a lot of people who were, I mean, we're talking maybe 50, 60 people all dressed in what looked like traditional Russian dress. And this was not a fancy dress party. This is how they dress, queuing up to kiss the icon of some saint and confess to the priest for whatever reason. And this sort of ritual, if you like, was very alien to to us. If you went into Westminster Abbey, for example, you'll see people taking photos, taking video, tourists everywhere. You won't see anything that's outwardly religious. You won't see people praying particularly or dressing in a particular way. There'll be people there in shorts and t-shirt. There'll be people there in work clothes, whatever. But in this particular church, there was a real sense of very old-fashioned values. And, and Paul talks about that in the interview, about how Putin has managed to almost go back in time a little bit with the culture of Russia and blend that outward nationalism, which is very militaristic, with traditional way of life. You know, And here we are in the West fighting a, a cultural battle with progressiveness and you know what people are calling the woke agenda and so on, and trying to think of ways of trying to be more inclusive and trying to think about ways in which we can be more liberal in the way we live. Meanwhile, we have this vast state, which is still empirical in nature, 
doing quite the opposite. Just trying to see Russia through our eyes is completely futile and means we will never fully understand what the country's like and how much of a risk it could potentially pose in the future. Matt, are we not fighting a cultural battle against reactionism and racism? Yeah, I guess so. I think it's really interesting what you're saying about religion in Russia because it's worth remembering that the Eastern Church has always been perceived as a place of this kind of alien energy that's not been well understood in Western Europe and beyond. And that dates back a thousand years to the schism of the Middle Ages, when the church broke in half. And the East has always, always, always been presented as a place of alien religion that's not well understood. Unlocking that mystery is what's always really attracted me. And I'm also reminded of Winston Churchill's comment of Russia's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I've always been absolutely fascinated by Russia, so I'm super glad that we get to talk to Paul. And more than anything, this whole chain of events began in Taunton, which is a place of not, not much mystery in my experience. <laughs> no, they could do a little bit more mystery. Although actually, it is a mystery to me why so many underage drinkers were served in the King's Arms over such a consistently long period. Well, there was a good black market in fake IDs going around back in the day, wasn't there? I mean, you were a manufacturer of them, as I remember. It's called supply and demand, Matt. The Russians would definitely approve of the black market trade in giving people what they want. And that's exactly the language that was used to me by those two guys from Essex sitting in that pub on Nevsky Prospects. It's all about supply and demand, mate, one of them said, rolling a cigarette. Ten minutes I'm later... I'm sure the interrogators said similar. Ten minutes later... He was getting a first-hand lesson in supply and demand. <laughs> Luckily, a lesson that I missed. I must admit, I don't know a fat lot about okay. the Ukraine conflict, other than that it's something that's been bubbling for many, many years, isn't it? It has. I mean, certainly came to a head with the takeover of the Crimea, which took everyone pretty much by surprise. Although, I mean, to go back into time, fall of the Soviet Union, the independence of you know, Belarus, Georgia, and, and Ukraine, the way in which the Budapest talks took away the nuclear weapons and then gave uh, independence to those countries with a view of that they would be neutral in any conflict. And then looking at Putin's adventures in trying to prod the West, as it were, insofar as taking parts of Georgia, parts of Moldova, and various other places prior to Crimea and Donbass. And then obviously, you know, you've got things like Salisbury and the really sort of testing the West on, on the resolve as far as tackling the, the Russian bear. Of course, then you've got the energy side of things, which obviously you know that the West is pretty much tied into, especially Germany. And all that uh, really sort of is very much in the, the way that which Russia views the outside world. And one of the sort of criticisms I have in all this with all the, the experts, and please, I, I'm not an expert, I'm an observer in this, is the, the way in which experts view Russia through their own lenses. And so... Nobody really looks at it through the lens of either history or Putin's part in the fall of the Soviet Union and, and also, of course, Russia's place in the world. 
when the, the Soviet Union fell, obviously uh, we had NATO on one side, Warsaw Pact on the other, Warsaw Pact disappeared. NATO continued, and through a Russian lens, the Baltics joining NATO when you know, Russia was no longer a threat. You know, why, why would you want to continue your military pact, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, when you know, we're the good guys now because you know, the Soviet Union is gone. We're now you know, a democracy with brackets. And so in Russian eyes, it's all been very, why are you doing this? Then there was the overthrow of Yanovich in the Ukraine, the Maidan, and the fall of the Ukrainian government, a, a pro-Russian government. And obviously the, the rhetoric coming from the EU was such where you could see that the Russians would see the Crimea uh, eventually coming under the EU and the Ukraine being the EU, which would then threaten the Black Sea Fleet. And so looking at everything through the Russian lens, and it's not Russian propaganda, it's, it's simply how they view things. You know, I'm not saying for one minute I agree with it, but it is a lens that needs to be looked at. Then where we are now, where they took the Crimea, nobody did a thing about it. They went into the Donbass, the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, and nobody did a thing about it. And so he, he sat there and thought, well, where do we go from here? And while we were navel glazing and worried more about all the woke that the West has tend to sort of concentrate on in the last five years. He sat back and looked and watched and sees Trump. He sees riots. He sees Boris. Uh, he sees Macron. He sees the Germans and, and pretty much says to himself, this is a weak West. And the other side of the coin, and I'll bring China into play, the Russians and China see things in generational change, whereas we plan for the next tweet. Putin sees it. Certainly does uh, the Chinese. They want to maintain their empires. And as far as China's concerned, Taiwan was the wayward child. They've had all the others back, again, with no fight, Hong Kong, etc. And they want Taiwan. And of course, you know, for Russia, historically, Ukraine being very much part of the old Russian empire, they want that back. And us in the West are more worried about truckers in Canada or trans rights or whatever. And as, as good as that is, our adversaries who are after taking, uh, taking lands, revisiting the sort of Middle Ages, they're planning for that. And we've, British Army has just reduced down to you know, 70,000. In the midst of all this, Americans are getting rid of soldiers because they're not vaccinated. So... Where we are really is, is certainly a culmination of all that and probably other things as well. But the other thing I'd like to add is revenge and humiliation are two aspects of both Russian and Chinese thought process. Why is that? Well, because they've been hurt. In the, and again, looking through the lens of Russia, it was working for them. It was the great empire. They were a superpower. Everyone kowtowed to them. And they had uh, lands and resources and everything that they ever needed. And the West has, has interfered as they see it, going back to the revolution. The Americans and the French, Greeks and the British all got involved in the revolution. And then, of course, 
the Germans invading, again, part of Europe. And the, the truth of the matter is, militarily, whilst they had the manpower, it was American equipment that got sent to Russia that enabled Russia then to defeat, certainly up until the Elba, the Germans. And you know, Stalin's supposed to have paid, but he never did. But that's a whole different story. But at the end of the day, it's all about being beholden. And again, you know, there's a, a slightly sort of in the background thought process that the West couldn't have done it without the West, although we'd never acknowledge that. Is that not old history now, Paul? Not for the Russians. Why is that? Is that part of their <sighs> national characteristics almost as, as people that they hold grudges? <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this is going off into a slight tangent. The split between Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and Western Orthodoxy and, and Rome and Constantinople was a huge schism. And the uh, what is now the Moscow Church, the Eastern Church, is, is very, very conservative, massively conservative. You'd never hear half of the things that even the Pope will come out with uh, on that side of things. So it's very much maintaining those old conservative traditions of families. Hey, guys, I'm so sorry. The light brigade charges in. Listen, I'm, so, I'm just so overloaded with different time zones and, and, and stuff. I just find it possible to keep track. I know we're recording on Tuesday, right? And then I realize it is Tuesday. Easy done. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, we're talking about the Russian almost uh, national characteristic of holding grudges. Uh, One of the things that I was saying is that uh, there's a number of facets. One is history is so important to them. Uh, And one of the things that Putin has done magnificently, um, I might say, as a historian, is that he's brought back all the czarists trapping. He found the bodies of the czar. He had them reburied. Recently, there's been a, a royal marriage the uniforms are Napoleonic uniforms going back to the Tsar. All the gilded palaces and, and stuff is all there. The flag has gone back to the traditional Russian flag. And so bringing back that as psychologically for the Russians has made them feel, yes, we've, we've still kept some of our Soviet flags and Soviet bits and pieces, and we still have Soldiers' Day and Airborne Forces Day and all the other bits and pieces. Veterans are pretty much looked after, but it goes back deeper, I think, into the consciousness of the schism between the Eastern Orthodox Church and and Rome, that the churches have a a huge influence of conservatism and and family and history that has a, a huge hold and always has done. And that's one of the things... If you go back to 1941, uh, Stalin, after all the pogroms and killing all, all the, the officer corps, was going to be defeated. He brought back czarist ranks, czarist uniforms, and some aspects of czarist to unify the, the country. And Putin has done that, but doubled down on it. He's brought back stuff going back to the Napoleonic Wars. If you look at the, the soldiers that guard him, they're all in Napoleonic Tsarist uh, uniform. So history has played a huge part. Clearly, the Great Patriotic War is is a big influence, but so is Borodino and and various other sort of battles that the Russia has won over over the hundreds of years. And then, of course, part of that will be empire and what a great empire it had. And so you have a mismatch of both Soviet 
where we had this you know fantastic empire and then we also had the czarist element to it the trappings of guilt gilded cages and uh, and ranks and and medals so he's managed to sort of bring all that together and the other side of it of course is he's looked at the decadent west and said look what they're doing do we want to be part of that and the church has said no we don't want to be part of that we don't want anything to do with rome look what he's saying on societal change and etc etc then so russia has built this sort of bulwark of conservatism with a, a nationalistic flavor to it i'm not going to draw those the same conclusions as many will do if they listen to this to germany in 33 there are similarities but i don't think that you've got the political nuances that came with 1933 so whilst there are some elements of you know bringing back the army in 33 in germany russia didn't have to do that because it actually has won everything pretty much and again you know looking at the west we're getting rid of soldiers because they're not vaccinated we've got completely messed up sort of you know covid responses from different countries we've got leaders that worry about the next mean tweet whereas both china and russia are looking at long term 20 year 30 year 50 year programs because they're going to stay in power that long and they're also looking at how each of the countries have managed the, the covid crisis have managed politically and all this is just for them utter weakness and so we've come to this position now where putin is playing a game of chess he is on that side the only player and he is he is a master on our side rather like when you have the master come along playing 50 people and those 50 people are not masters they're just pretty good chess players but they're not masters so the master can play each of those people and that's what he's doing he's playing france he's playing hungary he's playing germany he's playing america he's playing britain and each of them are playing a different game with a different strategy looking at everything through their own lens whereas he knows them he knows their weaknesses and he knows their strength he doesn't have to answer to anyone well, i was in russia a couple of years ago in St. Petersburg, and we were doing the usual tourist thing of having a tour and go to visit Winter Palace and uh, St. Catherine's Palace and Churches Spill Blood and all this sort of stuff. What was really interesting listening to the guide talk and hearing various bits of information from the people we met was how, for a long time, the Russians felt like they'd lost their backbone around the time of the Romanovs. So Tsar Nicholas II was regarded as fairly weak and ineffectual in that part of Russia anyway, hankered back to the days of Peter the Great and so on. And how, you know, obviously the Bolsheviks blew that away, but Stalin brought a little bit of that back. That statesmanship, that kind of nationalism in a way, and also with it, that that nastiness, I, I suppose. Do you think that is, again, part of the Russian way of seeing the world? Oh, for sure. I actually sent you a, a picture, just dig it out again. And I, mm. This is something that, that I took. Yeah. You can see there the thought process of those in the East and how they fight wars. I will destroy your dream. I will destroy mm. your mind. I will destroy your soul. And then I will take your life. Yeah, it's the order of the events, isn't it? It is, but it's also that sort of 
school of Genghis Khan. While we're worried about whether we are an inclusive army, they are out there, what's the best way to, to kill people and to make them suffer? While we navel glaze about stuff that, that our armies have done 50 years ago, they care not about human rights or issues along those lines. So the mindset of, of those in the East is completely different. And they know that. And they know that it's unlikely that there is any force that would stop them if they wanted to come to Folkestone tomorrow morning. They would simply, you know, just literally blitzkrieg their way through. Even down to the, the, uh, the fact that Putin recently told her and said, you know, I'm happy to use nukes. Yeah, we'll all die, but I I'm happy for that. You've used the word a couple of times, actually, uh, which I found interesting, was the idea of adversaries. And again, going back to that idea of, you know, the, I don't like using the words woke agenda, really, because it, it is quite condescending in a sense. But certainly a lot of preoccupation in the UK at the moment is Brexit still there, COVID still there, a lot of political chatter about Boris this, Boris that, and on the left. Be uh, careful of displaying your politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. actually a better word for that. Yeah. And, I, and I think, again, looking at it through the lens of, of yeah. Russia and certainly some of those in the Ukraine, is liberalism, you know, liberal agendas. They would see as against church, uh, against the state, and completely destructive in the long term. So I think that the methodology of which they are going about their business at the moment, and I think China's doing a very similar thing, is very much about if we expose ourselves to the liberal agendas that the West has at the moment, it's certainly going to affect us and our youth. And if we look at it historically, you know, we saw the same with communism. I mean, I've heard talk uh, and a, a wry smile of actually who wanted the wall to go up between the East and the West. And I think at that time, we were both happy for the wall to go up, one to stop communism and the other one to stop democracy. But that's come down now. And so... One wonders how, how much both Russia and China are now thinking about we need to have that barrier again because we don't want our youth affected by these liberal ideas. There was a really fascinating story, which was that the Chinese version of Fight Club, you remember how it ends? Yes. I've not seen right. it, no. Oh, Matt. Um, <laughs> Well, it's one it's of just the too much 90s. like real life for me, you see. It's just, you know, just Matt, every it's day. It's one of the great classics of 90s <laughs> cinema. I, I'm going to insist you watch it I, I, the, the next time we have a call. Anyway, the ending of the movie is, Matt, is that there's a revolution, basically, and you, it ends with all these buildings exploding and, like, the headquarters of Visa explode and stuff. Anyway, apparently the Chinese screened it on their, you know, streaming site. I think it's called Tencent. And they cut the ending entirely. And instead, you get a, what we call a crawl, which is when you get writing on the screen, a super comes up and says, Tyler Durden was arrested by the police and taken to a lunatic asylum. The police foiled his plan and everything turned out all right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like complete inversion God. of the story, which is this very anti-establishment it's not one of my favorite movies, but I really like the movie. And I guess it's all about, based on what you were saying, the bad side of liberalism, of what liberalism causes in society, the 
quote unquote moral decay caused by kind of excessive moral relativism. See, there, there was another one yesterday, and I don't know if you heard about the Chinese figure skater who kept falling over yesterday. Well, you know that she's actually an American. She was born in America, and uh, she was trained in America. Uh, and the Chinese said to her, "Look, yeah, we'd love for you to come and renounce your American citizenship and be in the Chinese team." And of course, she was utterly, utterly useless. The message, very, very clearly, there for any anyone who wants to go to America to learn to be a figure skater is don't, yeah, don't, yeah, you'll just go backwards rather than forwards. Yeah, revenge and humiliation is something that plays a huge part in you know any hybrid conflict, be it societal or or however they view it and uh, humiliation when macron turned up yesterday to see putin he had to go through passport control so uh, funny isn't it paul what do you think that the russians make of donald trump you're also aware that in syria the russians tried to push into an american area mm. and of course in syria they use wagner wagner group the mercenaries the private military contractors and they were coming in to try and take an American base. And Trump ordered uh, an airstrike that killed 300 Russians. And from that day onwards, they never tried again. And that was it. That was the end story. And there was never any sort of massive news about it. Nothing was ever said in Russia. But the message was very, very clear. Don't even try. I think that, uh, and, and I'm not a fan, I think at the end of the day, his job really was to open up the political can of worms that we see now, rightly or wrongly. Uh, he certainly has shown politically how things work, which I think was a shock to a lot of people as far as the voting is concerned and the fact that they can't be audited, etc., etc. But that's a, for another day. I think that how he was viewed was so erratic, so uh, we had nothing on him. Uh, as much as they would like to think that he was a Russian plant, he certainly wasn't in my view, and I've never heard anyone from those that would know to say anything else. Like all heads of state, you have to keep your enemies close. And I think that was construed as somebody who was perhaps too close. Nothing was ever said about any other politician who keeps Putin close. And we could go on to sort of Hillary and, and stuff like that. I, I think that was just politics. Um, I think he was viewed as somebody, we'll wait for the next one in four years' time. This goes very much back to, we don't have to worry about the next mean tweet or what the newspapers say tomorrow. I saw my time in the civil service policy changes because somebody had read something in the sun. I mean, really, I mean, that is an absolute fact. And so you're looking at Putin who will sit there and go, okay, I'll wait 10 years. I'm still going to be here <laughs> and literally do things to see what happens. And like good little boys and girls, you know, as soon as something happens, like the poisoning of dissidents in Salisbury, they will say, oh, we can do that again. Nothing was ever done. We'll take Crimea. Yeah. Well, nothing was ever done. And so it will go on and on and on. So, Paul, tell us, is he going to invade Ukraine? What, what's happening? My view, and it has always been my view, what denotes a win? Okay. For starters... As we know, about three weeks ago, he went into Kazakhstan, replaced the head. It's now firmly back into the Union now. And in two weeks, he took over the country. Belarus, which is a very similar situation to the Ukraine, although the leader there is more aligned to Russia, 
Uh, he's now got 30,000 troops sitting in Belarus. Belarus is now effective part of Russia. He's mobilized his entire forces. Never been done before. The generals are sitting there going, this works, that doesn't work. Yes, we could move here. This bit of kit is broken. This colonel is rubbish because he didn't do as he was told. He's tested his entire army. He knows it works. Equally, we know we've got nothing to stop it. Yeah. We literally have nothing to stop it. The only we've known that for a while, though, surely. No. I mean, it's not it's been an open I, secret. I, I, I think it has been an open secret. It's like most things, we hope it would never happen. Why would you reduce your army, the British army, when this was happening? We should be doubling the size of our army, or at least stopping regiments being dismantled. But we're still going ahead with it. And he's proved beyond any reasonable doubt he can field an army that would just literally take on anywhere in Europe. If he wanted mm. Europe, he could take it. He's also seen firsthand now that Hungary is never going to play with NATO. And I want to trip back to some of the criticisms of Hungary of uh, how they've not wanted uh, immigration. They've been very anti some of the more liberal aspects of our society. The West has been very, very critical of Orban. And of course, it's part of the Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So now he knows that Orban is not going to play. And so that was a bit of a win for him. Uh, some of the smaller countries, Slovakia and stuff like that, have also said that they would never play. So he's seen very clearly who's on his side or who, who will go and play. There was a war. The other side of it is Germany's, certainly because of the uh, gas pipeline, has said, oh, yes, you know, uh, we will obviously support you, but we're not going to send any troops. We're not going to send any arms. We're not going to go and support any other NATO country. France is trying to be the elder statesman, but he was a joke. And, and none of these countries have mobilized. We haven't mobilized. The French haven't mobilized. Lithuanians and Estonians and, uh, haven't mobilized. And the ammunition that we have sent, the Americans have sent, is probably about three days in a battle. Bearing in mind, of course, it's currently stockpiled and a half reasonable Scud missile from Russia would just take out all those stockpiles if they so wished. What we see as a win, which is obviously you know, Russia taking Ukraine by force. I think he's won so much already, uh, domestically uh, and politically and militarily. He's seen what equipment we're willing to give the Ukrainians. We've seen what help we're willing to give them. He's seen what European countries on their side. And he's gathered up in the last two months two countries that will now be part of the, the new Russian Union. I thought it was really interesting the news from Kazakhstan. When you say part of the Russian Union, I mean, it'll presumably stay on paper a sovereign country, right? But in reality, it will be guided by Russia. Yeah, uh, He's absolutely. not going to try and reincorporate it. Oh, no, it? no. I mean, the, the Soviet Union was a union of socialist republics. Yeah. And so each of those had a leadership of sorts. And so it will be called something else or nothing, but they will be firmly part of. And Putin would, would undoubtedly the shots he will make sure that uh, the oil flows or the gold flows and and the armies are paid and that's really all he needs to do 
and law and order is maintained in those countries. But the leadership will stay there. That's very much uh, uh, how it's always been. The armies, I actually tweeted this out this morning, I think that there will be some concessions that come out of Macron's visit, possibly handing over the Donbass and Crimea in perpetuity to Russia, of which Ukraine will either say yay or nay to it. I think that his ability to strike infrastructure through electronic means, taking out the banking system, the government systems, communications, would throw Ukraine into absolute crisis that could lead to a change in government. Equally so, he could do some surgical strikes to take out the weaponry that the West has given. On the pretense, of course, of Ukraine is a neutral country. Uh, we said we don't want it to be part of NATO. NATO is supplying them for weapons. We've just taken out their weapons. If, and it's a big if, and I don't think this would happen, if NATO decides to say we're going to send in troops formally under NATO, that army that surrounded them will then be used because the pretense for war is that NATO has invaded a neutral buffer zone, which was agreed under the Budapest Agreement. Do you think Putin ultimately wants a conflict? He doesn't care. I don't think he cares. I think one way or t'other, when you look at it through the lens of Russia, I think the concept of, all oh, 500,000 people might die, is not even in the equation. And I think that he knows that ultimately, yes, there will be no winners, much as realistically... Russia's retaking of its own lands and, and Germany really offered no great changes as far as the world was concerned about defeating Germany, obviously Hitler and all the rest of it. But the casualties and the thought processes of we're just going just gonna to do it regardless of what happens afterwards. I don't think Russia has that same mindset of, okay, so what happens next? They will just have the equipment and manpower to say, we don't really care what happens next. Is that a lot to do with politics in the, just using Tony Blair as an example, we talked about him last time Matt and I spoke, Blair's legacy is forever tarnished by Iraq. It's had a, a huge impact on the Labour Party in lots and lots of ways in this country, which has made opposition to, to Boris much more nuanced than it perhaps could have been. And obviously with Putin not really having any opposition, they're not being the same democratic structure the impact of a conflict in a war that's on your record so to speak is negligible it's not even in the equation it's not even part of their thought process you know the idea that we can cancel somebody because they did something bad 20 years ago is never going to happen lenin and stalin and all the rest of it if you go to georgia you'll still see stuff of stalin i'd like to just jump in there for a second because the one thing I can contribute is I did actually used to live in Tbilisi in 2019. There's a museum to Stalin there because he was Georgian, right? But the thing about Stalin, it's like they have a blind spot because they really dislike the Russians in Georgia. There's a museum of Russian aggression in Tbilisi, right? One of my best friends is Russian. and She always used to just lie and said she was Polish because they would, <laughs> they would always have a go at you. So Stalin, they celebrate him as one of their heroes yeah. because Stalin was a Georgian who went to Russia and killed lots of Russians. Yeah. yeah. But he also killed more Georgians than he killed Russians. I think that if you look at the psychology of the idea that 
tomorrow morning the uh, the Russian Daily Star will do an expose on Putin and he will be shamed out of office. Again, you know, he sees that in the West and everyone just goes, how can you do that? The way that all of a sudden, you know, people are defacing Churchill's monument and the like would never happen in the East to somebody who has been designated a, a hero. There's no retrospective history to look at it and say through the lens of 2022. So because you don't do that, then everything stays the same, you know, and, and let's say the church plays a huge part in that. So most analysts and most military experts are looking at everything in Russia through the lens of their own experiences and obviously being in the West. And even the Russian speakers, because I mean, culture and, and speaking it are, are two different things. So, you know, obviously previous podcasts talking about my time in the Ukraine, but I spent a great deal of time with my Russian colleagues who would walk me through Kharkiv or wherever we were and literally chat to me about how important the Ukraine was to them, that during the Soviet Union, everyone used to come on holiday in the Ukraine. Ukraine was seen as Florida for the Russians. It was part of their world. There was no border because everyone just lived each side between Dorset and Devon, if you like. And then waking up one morning in a separate country, and everyone ignored it. Everyone went, yeah, that's nice. And they just walked across the borders and they carried on farming and they, their families carried on living there and they went on holiday and all the rest of it. All the, the Soviet war memorials are, are still in every single village in the Ukraine. While I was there, there was a big anti-Russian aspect to, so post-Maidan 2014. One of the jobs that I had was going into villages to see if the war memorials were being attacked. And in many cases, some of the uh, younger Ukrainians were looking to dismantle these Soviet war memorials. And there were certainly times that I, I said to some of the village leadership, look, let's just put them in museums. Let's just dismantle them. Let's not destroy them. And there will be a time that they can come back again. So there was a big anti-Russian aspect from post-Maidan. And of course, all of a sudden, we used to go to Cornwall on holiday, and then all of a sudden, nobody wants me there. Well, actually, Cornwall's probably a, the wrong aspect. Yeah. Nobody wants you in Cornwall anyway. Um, but no, this is true. Um, that just hardened people's views. And then, of course, you had the pro-Russians who actually lived in the Ukraine, who said, no, we're having none of this. Russia is our, our heart. Yes, Ukraine is where we live, but it's our language, our culture, our food, and our dead are buried here. Every village had 50, 100. You know, I mean, look at our war memorials in small villages in Devon, Cornwall, Dorset. Every town, village has a war memorial with 20, 30, 40 names on it. Take that to the Ukraine, and every village, town has a Soviet war memorial. The Ukrainian soldiers in the main and Russian soldiers, but blood and treasure, again looking at it through the lens of the Russians, Ukraine, the blood and treasure of the Ukraine. And because it means a lot to them. I remember stopping off at a little village once in the Ukraine and uh, sort of local babushkas used to come out. And then a couple of them went out and they all came back with their grandfather's uniforms. Uh, stuff from the Civil War, you know, and um, 
all talking about you know how important Russia was. They'd fought in the Civil War. They'd fought in the Great Patriotic War. And so again, you know, something that we don't see in the West that link to the yeah. past. How worried should Western leaders be about Russia's state of mind at the minute? I think there's two answers to that. One is very. And secondly, if the Western leaders aren't up to the job, who is in the West, from what angle are they going to come at this? We saw with, with Chamberlain, Churchill, that could have gone you know, a number of ways. We saw with Germany, a weakened VMR Republic, Hitler. So from weakness comes strength. But that strength may not be a strength that we particularly want. It may come with other aspects to it. And we have to sort of also look at the other stuff that's happening that seems to be weakening our politicians. Certainly Canada and Trudeau with the truckers. Uh, And I'm not for one saying that they're directly uh, related. Although I've got to say that uh, if I was a mischief maker, it's exactly what I would want to do, given that. Canada has the largest Ukrainian population outside of Ukraine. I think that, again, what we're seeing is local politics or country politics overwhelming our leadership. Partygate. (laughs) Uh, I mean, really, in the midst of the greatest threat in our lifetime. uh, You think it is that great? Yes, without question. I think the closest we came to it was the Gdansk riots and and whether Russia was going to go into Poland during the Gdansk riots, having seen them obviously go into Czechoslovakia and Hungary and put that down. You could talk about Cuba, but I I think at the end of the day, that was um, not so much of a threat, certainly to Europe. This is certainly the, the greatest threat in our lifetime. And yet it takes up very little space. As I say, I personally wouldn't want to make the decision of whether we should mobilize or what we should do. But at the end of the day, it's a difficult one because there's no direct threat to NATO. But I certainly think that we should be certainly concentrating on the what-ifs. And I don't see any sign of that at all. We've got our eyes in the sky out there, our I-Star assets are out there watching. But by the time anything happens, because the stuff's in place, it could be too late. Another example was all our destroyers are in harbor at the moment, all in one place. I can tell you that, at least where I'm sitting, people are far more concerned with, did Joe Rogan say something racist 20 years ago? Here's my question. We say it's the greatest threat of our lifetime, but like, what exactly is the threat posed by Russia? How is it actually anything other than just a nationalist government looking after their own ends. I think that if we go back to the the chess analogy, he's out-thought everyone. He's, instead of saying uh, and beating his chest and saying, if you don't do this, I'll do X, he's actually doing X. 70% of the Russian armed forces have been mobilized. They have live ammo. They have all the tactical nukes. They have all the, the missiles. And if you look at the, the range, and for example, they've just put some major missiles uh, in Kaliningrad, which is completely unheard of, which could literally take out every city in, in the UK. And it's all there for the button to be pressed. I think that he clearly has a plan, and you can't keep the army sitting there in, the, in midwinter uh, and the troops 
twiddling their thumbs for any considerable amount of time. And he's unlikely, because we've talked about losing face, he's unlikely to say, yeah, I was only joking, and then put all the troops back home. The Russian generals won't want that. They've got their toys out of the box now. The danger really is, have we the ability to respond politically or militarily to stop him doing something that will spill over to the rest of Europe. So we have a bully in the playground, but what he's done is he's forming a gang. And when the gang's big enough, it can then rule the roost forever. What do we do? Do we join the gang and say, you can have whatever you want, we'll give you all our pocket money, very mafia way of running things. Do we allow it to happen? We will say, yes, you can have the Donbass, yes, you can have the Crimea, you can, yes, you can have Lithuania, yes, you can have Estonia. Where does it end? Or do we turn around and say, no, we're not playing those games. We did that in you know, 1945 to 19 whatever, and you've got your bit of the playground, and we have no problems with that, but this bit of the playground's ours, and we will fight for it. And I'm not seeing any Western leadership that is either has the, the rhetoric, perhaps that rhetoric is best left behind closed doors, but I don't see anyone capable of saying, listen, this is the road we're prepared to go down. I don't expect that to be done via a tweet <laughs> or on a, on Joe Rogan's podcast. But at the end of the day, I don't have any ability to, to say to you, yes, we have somebody in the White House, yes, we have somebody at number 10, yes, we have somebody at the Elysee Palace or wherever to say that. We literally do not have the leadership in the West to say, no, no, you're not doing that. And how quickly do you think it would be to turn that around if push came to shove? If it was deemed that actually this is you know, as serious as you say it is and there's real imminent threat of war in that part of, the, of Europe, could Europe feasibly join forces in the way they have done in, in no. previous conflicts no, it's quickly? Too late. That's why I said it's probably the most dangerous because, I mean, bear in mind that this all started in April last year. And so it was very clear that it was starting. And so if we'd stood NATO too when they started to mobilize and put in the field a considerable amount of troops, America have brought over a couple of divisions or whatever, brought over armor. Yes, it could have been a feint. Yes, it could have been, but it would have stopped it. And if you consider since 1945 and the fall of the Soviet Union, the British Army had 120,000 troops in Germany for that very reason, to keep the bear behind the doors. We've reduced now. We're no longer in Germany. We're now 70,000. The Dutch and, and the... Uh, the Germans haven't got a, an army of any consequence. The Dutch haven't. The French certainly have, but are uh, unlikely to, to use it of any consequence. You know, they're very flippant about using it. I think they need to be conquered first. And none of the other NATO armies, you know, had any interest. I've also got to mention the flight from Afghanistan, which really should have seen every 
one-star general and above, flipping burgers at Wendy's because they're still in place and um, we have done nothing. What politics are there other than appeasement when you haven't got an army standing behind you? It makes me remember, Matt, how much we studied appeasement at school. <laughs> Paul, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't ask you before the end of this podcast, tell me about the Azov Battalion. Well, because I have a friend who's making a documentary about it. <laughs> I did a, a report for the OSCE on the so-called privy sector paramilitary battalions. I personally am not a, not a particular fan. I don't like politicized armed forces. Uh, and I certainly don't like those that are maintained not by government control, but by political parties. Whilst undoubtedly there's going to be some of those that join for the right reasons, there is as many joining for right-wing political reasons. And it certainly draws upon people of a political persuasion, a right-wing political persuasion that I find abhorrent. The leader is this French guy who apparently is just a psychopath. Yeah. Soldiers, as far as I'm concerned, need to be disciplined and controlled, set very firm tasks within the rules of law, uh, rules of war. Slightly contradict myself because obviously methodology of which those in the East fight their wars are are not like that. But I think that history has shown that uh, we've won enough wars and fought them well to say that our way is probably the best way. They don't take prisoners, and no prisoners are taken, those paramilitary battalions. I do not like concepts of paramilitary battalions. I have no problem of somebody offering up the services to the government, as they did in the First World War, with you know football clubs and industry companies or, or whatever, forming their own battalions, but within a defined military set up with you know, rules and regulations and, and training. What I find interesting, Paul, is, and, and you guys are far better students of history than I am, but if you compare it to economics, you would expect a recessionary period, something like every eight years is the, is the typical model that people regard as a, a benchmark. We have, through recognising some of the signs better, avoided some of these big dips a few times, but it's postponement rather than avoidance. Transposing that into conflict, then there's been a major conflict in Europe once every something like 50 years or so, hasn't there, since a long time ago. Do you feel like almost there's a conflict overdue in global historical terms? And that sounds like a really stupid way of viewing it, but I think you do feel there's these cycles of nationalism, liberalism that go round the horn every 50 years or so. And we've been pretty good at maintaining peace since the, the Second World War, but are people bubbling a little bit at the minute, do you think? I think there's a number of things there. One is that there has been conflict. If you look at the Yugoslav War, but I also think we're better at stopping them not perhaps in as quickly as we should, but certainly stopping them overflow. Uh, Yugoslavia did overflow, but not to the extent where Belgians were fighting the Dutch or whatever. I think that the UN, as much as it's not particularly helpful in this situation, because it's vetoed by Russia and China, I think that they've played a, a reasonable part in stopping the overflow. They haven't stopped the genocide in various conflicts, but I think that Afghanistan was 20 years, uh, Iraq 10, 15 years, 
the wars in Africa, which continue to this day, of which you know people who sell arms and munitions are, are more than happy. I think that the ongoing conflicts, counterterrorism, if you look at Yemen, uh, Indonesia, and so on and so forth, have kept people pretty happy. And I, I think that the major European conflicts, certainly I watched credible, I mean, I never thought in my lifetime uh, that I would see tank attacks, mass batteries of BM-21 rockets. I saw villages taken out huge casualties on on both the russian and the ukrainian side not a journalist insight no one reported it it was almost like it never happened and i'd write a a small report uh, for the osce never came out yeah i've got a note here one particular ukrainian checkpoint checkpoint 22 on route t1303 west of luhansk was surrounded for over a week without food or water while they tried uh, unsuccessfully at Checkpoint 22 to negotiate a ceasefire, I was, I was trying to negotiate a ceasefire. These guys, they'd literally dug shell scrapes, so basically covering themselves in a circle, and they fought to the last round. And again, I saw tank battles, burnt-out tanks, and again, no reporting, no nothing. Why were there no reporters? I'd love to know the answer. I know I would. I really would. <laughs> I know that... Eventually, when I, I came out, because I was actually uh, attached to the ATO, the uh, anti-terror organization, which is what they called the separatist terrorists, I was actually t- attached to their headquarters. I was with an alpha team. Literally, as the main force would take a village, I would then go in afterwards, primarily to report on, on what we saw, but also mass graves and stuff which we saw and, and executions. And... About three months later, I was due back on leave, and I, I made my way up. I was actually picked up, I think, by a, a friend of mine, a former colonel. And he said to me, he said, oh, you know, just to let you know, we never told London you were there. Oh, okay, fine, thanks. You know, but there was no one. There was no one there at all. Extraordinary mm. to see that. There were Russian film crews. Bumped into them all the time, but there were no Western film crews at all. It's a big old place, and, and I think maybe some of them went off to Donetsk. Or they were sitting in Kiev with their, their lattes 300 miles away, writing all about it. I mean, they may have been conceivably answering the bigger question of whether or not Joe Rogan was racist 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, again, we're not seeing any reporting uh, other than from Kiev. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't seen anyone go down to uh, Severodonetsk or, or on the contact line, which is where you'd think you'd want to be to see what's going on there. Equally so, there's nobody down you know, on the Crimean border or, or even on the, the Russian border outside Kiev, which is where you'd think you'd want to be. So again, we're not getting the, the full picture. Journalism is not doing itself any favours by not doing that. I'm just reading an interesting article while you're talking, Paul, actually. I'll read it to you. You'll, you'll find this interesting in the context of our discussion. Bristol University, a member of the prestigious Russell Group, has just issued guidelines to staff on the correct pronouns to use when addressing those who define as cat gender. The list specifically refers to Xenic individuals who do not fit into the Western human binary of gender alignments. A cat person is somebody who strongly identifies with cats and may experience delusions relating to being a cat or other felines. So, you know, that's more important than global conflict. But well, the thing is, is, this is the bit where the Eastern Church, 
Russians of, of a certain education and persuasion will look at the West and go, we don't want that. You talk about we don't want COVID. We don't want that. We're crazy enough after you know, 14 bottles of vodka. The last thing we want to start wondering about is if we use the correct pronouns. You know? <laughs> Not sure if I want that either, to be honest. But, you know, the, the, the British Army's just had a day of reflection. No idea what it means. And, and you know, the, these are honourable and, and nice things to have. I personally don't think any army should reflect society. It's there to kill the Queen's enemies and, and be done with it. But I think that, uh, you know, that's the world we live in and maybe it was needed. But is it needed today when we are faced with a Russian army that is, as we speak, while we are reflecting on inclusivity, are sharpening their bayonets? I find that odd. Maybe. I say I'm of a certain age where I've got that bit wrong. And I wouldn't want us to be sort of chest thumping and saying, you know, if you think you're big enough. But uh, I think that he's negotiating with... 250,000 soldiers all ready and primed to go. We are negotiating with people who want their pronouns because they're cats. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We will post episode two shortly. In the meantime, please show your support for Ukraine any way you can. As always, we'd love to hear any feedback. We are reshaping how the podcast will look this year, but rest assured, we're working hard to bring you interesting content, interviews, and the usual nonsense. This was straight from the hot tower.